You're listening to the Mill Sunday School Podcast. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Open up your Bibles. This is a, uh, a passage many of you probably have underlined in your Bible. It's a passage that uh, the Jewish uh, church, the, the Jewish people, the people of the Old Testament, the people that are still Jewish today and do, don't recognize Christ as Messiah, the Jewish people uh, recite the first verse, this verse, um, usually twice a day is kind of their tradition. It's called the Shema. Everybody say Shema. The word looks like Shema, but it's Shema. And, um, and so it starts off, Deuteronomy 6.4, probably one of the most important passages in all of the Old Testament for the Jewish nation. Um, in Hebrew, they will say it, and it's only six words in Hebrew. They'll say, Shema Israel, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. Behold Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And then verse 5 says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. Verse 6 says, These commandments that I give you today uh, are to be upon your hearts. And these are the commandments that God gave Moses to give to the people. Talking about Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Uh, Verse 7 says, Impress them and your children. Talk about them when you sit at home, when you are on the road, when you lie down, when you get up. And verse 8, we're talking about symbols today, so pay attention to this verse. Verse 8 says, Tie them as symbols on your hands, as a reminder of God's law and and that he is one. Bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. So we're going to talk about symbols today, and God has a, a special place, I think, for symbols. We have a special place, we should have a special place for symbols of, of God and, and of religious tradition in our life. So that's today's topic. So let's, let's go before the Lord. Let's, let's start by praying to Him and thanking Him for being here. So God, we do thank You for being here. God, we recognize that Your presence is here that, that as you are in here, God, open us up, open our hearts and minds to understand symbols and how, how it is that you want us to use symbols to, to remind ourselves of you. Father, we thank you this morning for, for being good, for being God, for being holy, just, and awesome to us. And so, God, we praise you this morning. And everybody screamed, amen. <clears throat> Sorry, I have to clear my throat. <coughs> Okay, let's talk about a four-letter word called lint. Do you know what lint is? Not the lint in your dryer. I'm talking about the 40 days of fasting before Easter. Has anyone ever given up anything for lint at any point in your life? The kind of stuff you give up is like chocolate, right? How many girls have given up chocolate for lint? <laughs> yeah, yeah, you, you've all been there, I know. Uh, how many of you have given up Facebook or video games or computers or movies or TV or uh, you give up uh, Aaron Stern last uh, Lent gave up Mountain Dew for 40 days. He almost died. Uh, he lived through that, though. He, he was okay. Uh, there's, there's things we give up for Lent. And so I want to talk quickly about the history of Lent, which is kind of a rabbit trail for this topic of sacraments and symbols today. But I really think it'll, it'll blend back in and you'll understand why we talked about this. So Lent is the season right before Easter, right before Resurrection Sunday. It's the 40 days. Many of you know that it starts uh, on the day after Fat Tuesday. The French for Fat Tuesday is Mardi Gras, Tuesday fat. But Fat Tuesday, we call it. The French word is uh, Mardi Gras. And the idea, uh, dating back to the Middle Ages, middle, in the Middle Ages, people, uh, they, they would give up usually meat for 40 days. 
or, or, or food, uh, processed food, animal food. Uh, they would give up fruits. Sometimes they would only eat bread. We'll talk about that in a second. But so, so if you're going to give up meat uh, for 40 days and you still have some meat laying around and you don't have a freezer because you're living in the Middle Ages, what would you do the night before you went on a 40-day fast? You'd, you'd eat up all the meat. You'd, you'd cook it all. You'd make sausages and bacon and then wrap those sausages in bacon and then the bacon like on top of a steak. And then like you'd make a big meat sandwich and then you'd eat it and just kind of live it up kind of have a celebration a party with with all the food that you couldn't eat right before you began this 40-day fast and so if you're giving up like chocolate or something you might like binge yourself on chocolate the night before and go crazy because you're not going to have chocolate for 40 days and of course those traditions of just kind of living it up before the 40 days of fasting is, is what leads to the debauchery and shenanigans uh, like in New Orleans and the nudity and the drunkenness. People's ideas are like, we need to party it up before we fast for 40 days. But most people don't even know that history. They just want to go to a big old party. But that's, that's kind of the tradition of where the party came from on Fat Tuesday. And then the next day, the Wednesday is called Ash Wednesday. Yes. And so uh, Ash Wednesday is the day that you uh, wake up early, especially in Catholic or more traditional churches, and and go and get prayed over either in the morning or in the evening, um, and and you get ashes on your forehead. Anybody ever get ashes on their forehead like I did as a kid? Oh, cool, lots of hands. Um, And so you go, it's called Ash Wednesday, and and in the Old Testament, there's this idea that when you were fasting, you'd put ashes on your forehead and uh, as a symbol of, of mourning, as a symbol of sadness, and, and so it's, it's called Ash Wednesday. You, st- you start off the 40 days with Ash Wednesday. You get, you get prayed over by a priest, usually, or a, uh, some religious person. They put ashes on your forehead, and, and then the 40 days begins. And, uh, and so here's a picture of the Middle Ages. Some, some servants, or some serfs, some peasants working out in a field. And I, I bring up this picture to, to, to say that in the Middle Ages, people didn't give up Facebook. You know why? Wasn't around. People didn't give up chocolate in the Middle Ages in Europe. You know why? It wasn't around. Chocolate's a New World thing, and so it didn't come over until Columbus went over there, and then the Spanish brought chocolate back. And so there was no chocolate to give up. People didn't give up video games in the Middle Ages because no video games to give up. People didn't give up TV because there was no TV to give up in the Middle Ages. And so Lent in the Middle Ages was a very serious thing. I have down that, that in many areas and places all over Europe in the Middle Ages, it, it was all of the Middle Ages, I should say, it was, it was mandated. It was a strict, like the church told you to fast during Lent. And so you, you had to fast depending on what the church in your area said. And for the most part, the church in your area would probably have you uh, fast meat. You could not have any meat during Lent. Some, sometimes it was, you could not eat anything all day. You had to eat in the morning or in the, after dark, kind of like a Ramadan, like a, uh, the Muslims celebrate Ramadan. They don't eat during the day. And so through the Middle Ages, uh, people would celebrate Lent by not eating during the day. Um, some extreme followers of Lent throughout the Middle Ages, uh, whole groups of cities, towns, uh, would, would fast everything except bread and water during the 40 days of Lent. That's all you could eat. It was mandated as almost like a, a law because the politics and religion were so close in the Middle Ages. So you couldn't eat anything um, except bread and water 
during this time of Lent. And the Middle Ages was, was no picnic. It was a very hard time. Imagine no running water. Imagine no bathrooms. Imagine, like we know it, imagine uh, very little food. Imagine kind of being a slave to your land. And a lord owned the land. And so you had to work off uh, huge amounts of debt. And there was servitude. And you could learn about the pyramid system of, of the feudal system. And people were extremely poor, extremely sick during the Middle Ages. I, I saw a statistic that uh, in America right now, our life expectancy, uh, how old we'll live on average, the life expectancy of American is uh, 77.9. That's a long, full life, don't you think? I think so. In the Middle Ages, the li- average life expectancy was 35 years old. Everybody say, Really? Yeah, really, there was a lot of child, infant mortality. There was a lot of, you know, you, you had children when you were a teenager. You kind of raised them up so that your children were teenagers. Then you would be in your 30s, and then you know, maybe you lived to 45, 50, and then that would be considered a very long life in the Middle Ages. There was no hospitals. There was no uh, medical stuff. In fact, w- when you got sick, the, the practice was to let blood out of you. It's like the sickness is in your blood. It's a demon in your blood, and so you need to bleed out the demon. I can't think of a worse thing to do when you're sick. It's like to let your... Anyways. And so imagine yourself in the Middle Ages. It's uh, usually Lent, almost always, because Resurrection Sunday is in the spring, right? And so the 40 days before that, like a month and a half before that, would usually fall somewhere in February or March. Very, very cold, very, very hard times for very, very poor people in the Middle Ages. And so you have all these people... It's already hard because it's winter. It's already a very hard life. People are starving. And more than that, you're, you're, you're mandated not to eat certain foods, to fast all day long, to only break the fast at night, to only eat bread and water for this whole season. It's a very, very hard time. A lot of, you could say, bondage, and the church mandated, mandated it. So you had to do it if you lived in Europe in the Middle Ages, just what you had to do. And I want to say this sentence. I want to get it correct because the average person... The, the people in the Middle Ages did not question Lent. They did not ask themselves, where in the Bible does it say we need to uh, celebrate Lent? People in the Middle Ages, average common people, were not asking themselves, where is Lent in the Bible? Because they didn't have the Bible. The Bi- there was like maybe a Bible per town, per church, maybe, if your town was very lucky. And that Bible was probably lit- written in Latin, and you probably spoke some other language. If you lived in Germany, you spoke like an old Germanic language, not Latin. So even if you could get to that book, it would be worth more than like 50 lifetimes because it took, you know, they were just, it was worth, you know, comparably like thousands and thousands of millions of dollars for one Bible because it was handwritten. It was written on parchment papers. It's just probably one of the most valuable possessions a town could own. And so you, you didn't question the Bible because you didn't read the Bible. You didn't read the Bible because you didn't have the Bible. And so any type of questioning of like, where does the church get its authority from in the Middle Ages had to come from within the church, within the scholarship, within uh, the scholarship of the church itself. And so during the Middle Ages, you have this guy. And this guy, many of you probably know who he is. He um, was one of the protesters. He was one of the reformers that we get the Protestant Reformation from. Um, If you know who this guy is, on the count of three, yell it out. One, two, three. Yes, you all get credit. This is Martin Luther, the protester, 
the reformer to the church at the time, which, which we now know as the Catholic Church. Are, you know, we kind of diverged from the Catholic Church, and we, all of us, would be part of the protesters. He wrote the 95 theses, the 95 bullet points against the church. Of course, nailed them on the door of Wittenberg uh, Church. Some of you probably know that uh, story. Uh, a big Latin phrase of Martin Luther's was sola scriptura, only by scripture. And so Luther was asking himself questions in the Middle Ages. Like, if people are starving to death and all they have is some meat and, and it's during Lent and it's cold and people are, why can't they eat this meat? No, the church says they cannot because they have to celebrate Lent. And Luther would ask the question, well, where in the Bible does it say you have to celebrate Lent? And does it say anything in the Bible about celebrating Lent? No. I mean, if you don't know, I'll tell you, it doesn't. It's, uh, I mean, there's fasts. Sometimes, like Jesus fasted for 40 days, but he fasted. It wasn't before Easter Sunday. He, was, he, he himself was eating the Passover, right, before Resurrection Sunday. And so it's a, it's a, it is a man-made tradition of the church to celebrate Lent. And because of how hard it was on the people, Martin Luther, as a leader, said, why are we mandating this to the people? Where does it say in Scripture to do that? And, and another guy that carried this even further, here's his picture. You probably don't know him. He's not as well-known as Martin Luther. Does anybody know who he is? He's a Switzerland reformer. Starts with a Z. Nah, he's not as popular. His name is uh, Zwingli. First name, Ulrich. Girls, if you're looking for uh, baby names, that's a good one. Ulrich. Ulrich Zwingli. Uh, there he is. There's his picture. Looks like a cool dude. But I have this quote about him because, uh, let's see, I'll, I'll, let's talk about him for a second before I show you the quote that I just made up about him. But um, he was a priest. He was, he was part of the, uh, the uh, priesthood. He was a theologian. He studied Greek and Hebrew. He translated and uh, copied all of Paul's epistles. Um, someone who was very theologically well-known. He was a political reformer as well in Switzerland. And he began asking questions like Luther did. Where are some of these traditions and symbols that the church is mandating to the people? Where is that in the Bible? And I think Zwingli took it even further uh, in his, some of his reforms than Luther did. And so I, I made up this quote about Zwingli. Zwingli made Luther look like a Catholic altar boy. Is that funny? Not funny? Everybody just laughed, just for me. <laughs> Thank you very much. Um, Zwingli uh, was rough around the edges, is probably a good way to say it. He was accused of not, as a priest, you're supposed to be celibate, means not get married, not have sex. He was accused of not being celibate during his priesthood, and he kind of jokingly didn't deny that he hadn't been celibate. Um, and, and during Lent, his big claim to fame, uh, the, the beginning of his reforming years. While imagine your whole town uh, celebrating Lent. No one's eating meat. Maybe the only thing you're eating is bread and water every single day for 40 days. That'd be a little brutal, right? I mean, bagels, it's like, bagels good for like every morning for like a week, but then you're like, man, I need something else. Where's my Wheaties, right? You want to mix it up. Uh, you want some bacon. You want to have some sausages. You want to have a steak or something. And so in the middle of Lent, uh, in the middle of this town in Switzerland, everyone's not eating meat, potentially only bread and water. Zwingli had a big barbecue. Here's a picture of some bacon. Mmm, bacon. And imagine bacon and a big barbecue. He's celebrating and, and cooking up meat. And you probably smell it around 
the city for, for miles. And he was blatantly in disregard to the Catholic uh, law that said you have to celebrate Lent by not eating meat and potentially only bread and water. It was, uh, let's see, 1520 that he did that. He announced his uh, position against the, the papacy and against the church. He and his associates, uh, they, they, they blatantly broke Lent, and he declared that fasting was a provision merely by human commands, and it was not in harmony with the Bible, and that the Bible was our only sole source of faith. Therefore, anything not in the Bible, we should get rid of, like mandating that everyone only eat bread and water during Lent. Are you following me thus far? Okay, we'll kind of come back to this idea of Lent. We'll kind of give the big picture right now and say that this month we are talking about sacraments and symbols within the church, and we'll get back to this idea of Lent in just a second. But Lent is like one of these rites or one of these things that, that potentially has, it's not said to do that in the Bible, but people, you know, make, make a, maybe a bigger deal out of tradition. And your parents did it, and your parents' parents did Lent. And so out of reverence to, to history and tradition, you would then celebrate Lent or have a certain symbol, or maybe your grandma wore a cross around her neck and your mom wore a cross uh, around her neck and so she gave that cross to you and you wear that cross around your neck and it's just very holy, a piece of holy jewelry to you and it means so much and and, and that's fine and that's great but we're going to talk about today where symbols should fit in our life and and, uh, and so before we do that, let's take a little break and do some announcements. Um, if you're new to Mill Sunday School, welcome. We, we like that you're here. Uh, on the tables are um, visitor cards. I think it says our old logo, which says Get Schooled. If you fill one of those out, give it to the, one of the people as you're leaving by the black curtain out there. They'll give you a CD. The CD's from our, our, our main service. Our mill main service is on Friday night, and there's worship there. And, uh, and so if you haven't been to the mill on Friday nights, that we are just a ministry of that. You should definitely go check it out. It's pretty cool. Uh, and so you get a CD of some of our worship songs that we recorded at the mill a long time ago. And uh, let's see, that's if you're new. Uh, how many of you are going to fall retreat? About half. That's not enough. Everybody should go. <laughs> um, you, you should definitely think about it, consider it, look about, ask somebody about it if you've never been. They'll tell you that it's pretty awesome. We, it's, we take a, a weekend, leave everything here, go up into the mountains. Well, I guess we take our stuff, but we, you know, we go up into the mountains we leave our work and school behind, and we, we, we hang out with each other. We have a couple services up there, play games. We chill in the mountains. It's awesome. It's well worth the money and the time. So fall retreat, if, you, if, if you're interested in it, you could come talk to me or somebody else that's wind, or at the back table as you leave, you could ask them, and you could register back there as well. Uh, let's see. What else do I want to talk about? Oh, yeah, this week. Uh, this week, there's, there, we had a meeting Aaron invited me to, Aaron has a monthly meeting with uh, college pastors in Colorado Springs. If you're a college, if you're at a local church and you're, you're a college pastor in, in your church, then, then that Aaron started this meeting once a month where he kind of pulls all the college pastors in the town, city of Colorado Springs, together, which is pretty cool. And uh, once a month they get together, they talk and they pray. And um, there's, there's less than 10 of them, but a handful. And we were, Aaron invited me and we were going around and the question was asked, you know, if the college ministry is only a ministry for four years or so, because most college students are, are either here and then either get jobs and leave, or it's a very, you know, a lot of turnover in a college ministry because there's 
college students are, you know, up to moving and maybe they're just here for a time or they leave for a time and come back. So college and 20-somethings, potentially, the, the, I guess the stats kind of say that they're, they're in a college ministry for about four-ish years. And so if you had four years to, to communicate something, what would be your goal to communicate to the college ministry knowing that you only had a limited time of about four years with a, any one group of people. And the, the, the people went around in this meeting and, and said what their goals and stuff would be. And it came to me and I said, well, my goal, one of the really cool things that I get to do at, at New Life Church and as a part of the mill is the mill Sunday school. And I was just so honored and, and proud to say that, you know, I think so often in church, the sermons or just the maybe a Bible study, nothing against these things, but sometimes they're just at, at a lower level than a college level. I'll just say it like that. Um, they're not at, you know, we as college students and 20-somethings are, if we're, especially if we're in college, we're reading college textbooks, we're reading college uh, materials, we're going to a college-level uh, classroom. And then sometimes our, our church or our Bible study isn't at a college level. Maybe it's at a middle school level or less. And we don't, it's not a free space to to dialogue and, and ask questions and, and really learn a, a, in depth about a certain subject. And I was just so happy at this meeting and proud to say that, you know, my niche here in, a, as a college pastor is, is this niche of, you know, we're going to take, take church very seriously. And this avenue, this outlet right in here, Mill Sunday School, is where we teach at a college level, sometimes post-college level. And it's, it's sometimes I think things maybe go over our head in here, and that's okay, but we're here and... And, and that's a good thing, and we're, we're all, some of us at least are excited to learn, and we, we got this community going of like, we're the nerds of the mill, and I'm just so happy about that. Anybody like being called that? Yes, me too. We're the nerds of the mill. Anyways, uh, I just thought I would share that, because it was just exciting parts. I mean, it's very obvious, like what I do at the mill, but sometimes it's cool just to think about it in the context of ministry, and so I thought I would share that. So, let's continue. Sacraments and symbols. Review. Last week, Aaron Stern uh, was here. He spoke about liturgy, if you, if you were here last week. And I, I really asked Aaron Stern to share last week. He's our college pastor on Friday nights, if you don't know, if you're newish. But I really asked him to share because um, it seems like the mill has been incorporating more and more of these liturgical devices and things. Have you noticed that? Like, like just last Friday, there was reading of Scripture. Uh, very often, we will all say a prayer together in unison. We will read a Scripture in unison. Uh, very often, we will, uh, like, say the Nicene Creed together. Uh, the worship uh, every Friday nights, the songs that have been chosen, seems like we're throwing in more liturgical or hymnal kind of songs. Has anybody else noticed this? Yeah, so, and so it's, it is, we are being... Um, strategic about that and i think it's kind of the, the the staff of the mill has really been considering these things and so often you know we we look at liturgy or traditional churches and say oh they do things their way we do things uh free and we do things our way but i think there's this we should look and see you know church history is rich and is deep and in church history we come from more of a traditional church it, you know the, the the way things were done was more traditional than the free charismatic ways that we do things now in general and so Aaron shared last week about how sacraments and symbols and liturgy and traditional things like we shouldn't just throw them away into the trash but we could we should celebrate and connect with our own history while knowing what we're doing and he said that you know potentially one of the the bad things about doing 
a, a traditional, very liturgical, very symbolic service is that people just do it and go through the motions without knowing why they're doing it. So that would be a danger. More about that to come, but I thought we should talk about symbols today. What is a Christian symbol? What is a religious symbol? Uh, here's a definition if you like to write things down. This is an extremely broad definition. It pretty much encompasses anything that could even resemble something that could be called a symbol. But a symbol is something such as an object, a picture, a written word, a sound, or a particular mark that represents something else by association, resemblance, or convention. Easy enough, right? It's just something that represents something else. Simple. You got it. So, I thought we should discuss for just a second and make it into like a little competition. Uh, if you're at a table, your, your table, that would be your group. If you're not at a table, you kind of turn to someone else or, or, or form a, a pair or a group. And what I thought would be fun is if you tried to name as many symbols as you could within, let's just say, two minutes. I'll give you two minutes. Name as many symbols as you can. For instance, I'll give you one. Uh, the cross. The cross is a symbol. That's it's maybe your first one. But then not just symbols of Christianity, Symbols within Christianity, like say the dove, the peace dove the, the, in the story of Genesis, that, that's a symbol within Christianity. So I just gave you two. Um, so specifically, name as many symbols within Christianity as possible. And if your table or group names the most, you will be the winners of the day. Ready? Get set? Go! quite a few as we as you probably found out i mean one group had 33 uh my list that i made this morning only had 15 but uh i like to think that that list was a very good list as well let's talk about sacraments everybody say sacraments and i'm going to give the definition of a sacrament as a rite in which god is uniquely active a rite in which god is uniquely active and i'm going to say that you know in my language i would say that a sacrament is a, in quotations, an action symbol. Whereas a symbol is like a picture or something you can hold. You can hold a cross. You can hold, uh, you can look at a picture of the Trinity knot. You can look at a picture, the symbolic of a dove or Santa Claus or whatever. Those are symbols of something else. But a sacrament is an action, uh, like baptism would be an action. Baptism is the symbol, like we, we wash with water, we, we dunk in water, we uh, get water poured over us depending on, uh, what, what you believe about baptism and how exactly it's supposed to happen. But either way, it's, it's a symbolic nature of your sins are being cleansed away, you're being washed, uh, you're dying in the baptism waters to be rised anew. That's a symbol, and it's not, but it's not like a symbol like you can look at the cross. You, can't, like, you could do baptism, and so I call a sacrament a, an action symbol. And many of you know, coming from a more traditional background, uh, that the Catholic Church, I grew up Catholic, and so... I had to memorize and learn about the Catholic sacraments. But they do have a list of seven. They hold baptism as a sacrament, as, as well we do as the Protestants. We would say baptism is a sacrament. They usually do infant baptism. Uh, most Protestant denominations do a believer's baptism, however, not all. Uh, the, the second uh, sacrament is confession. You go to a priest inside a little booth. Or when I was a Catholic kid, it was just a, a room that was... Uh, had lots of paintings and, and symbols around, and a priest was sitting in a chair, and I came in, I sat in a chair, and I had to say, like, it's been, this is my first confession, I've never confessed, uh, hear my conf- confession, 
And then it's like a little kid. I can't remember how old I was exactly, maybe like 10. I was like, I committed these sins. He's like, what's, what sins have you committed, my son? And I was like, I, I beat up my brother constantly. <laughs> I, I stole some stuff out of the cupboard and, you know, just kid sins. And then he, he said, okay, here you have to act of penance. You have to say this many Hail Marys. You have to truly be sorry. Go say these prayers as an act that you're truly sorry. I said, okay. And I went into the next room. I prayed those prayers and I was done. And I was supposed to go back like you're supposed to do as a catholic you're supposed to good catholic at least you're supposed to go every week or every month or something and then say it's been so many days since my last confession hear my confession etc they would hold that as a sacrament um communion is a sacrament in the catholic church as well it is for us uh the the symbolic nature of taking the blood and uh body of christ uh the next one is confirmation catholics believe that uh, at some point to, into adulthood when you're a teenager, 13, 14, or something like that, as a kid, you, you would be confirmed that you are, in fact, a part of the church. And I've heard the Catholics believe that you get the Holy Spirit at, at confirmation. Um, let's see, the next one is matrimony, the, the sacrament of getting married. The next one is anointing the sick, also called last rites, or the really cool name, extreme unction, which is just a cool name for this idea that if you're dying, you need a priest to come. Uh, give you, pray over you your last rites, or if you're sick, to anoint you with oil. They hold that as a sacrament. And finally, holy orders. Do you know what that one is? It's where a, it's the holy orders is a priest. When they take their holy orders to be a priest, they would, Catholic Church considers that an, a sacrament, a priest taking, being ordained. So that's the, the, the list that Catholics hold to. We, as usually as Protestant evangelical Christians, we hold two of these out of the seven to be our sacraments. Do you know which ones? First one, our baptism, and uh, the third one, communion. And we would say those are sacraments. And, but I would say to open up the definition of sacrament and just a, like a rite in which God is uni- uniquely active, I just thought I would throw this as somewhat of a rabbit trail, but throw this at you as a thought that, you know, we were, we, as I planned for this sermon, uh, there's usually a group that I, I get together, some Sunday school leadership, and we, we talk about, you know, the, the month to come, and we plan it out, and we, we, we chit-chat. And one of the questions we thought about is, you know, what are some modern-day sacraments? Are the things that we, as Protestant, evangelical, modern Christians, hold as sacraments that maybe aren't sacraments by the Catholic definition, but are maybe sacraments to us? And we thought, well, maybe an altar call is kind of like a sacrament. Don't you think? Like, if you're, if you're a Christian, you know, someone might say, oh, how long have you been a Christian? And you start talking, it's like, oh, well, did you go forward in an altar call? And that's kind of a question, a, kind of a rite of passage in some ways in our modern, you know, the way we do church. Or maybe the sinner's prayer could be a part of that sacrament. Or I, we, we at this meeting were talking, it was like, well, maybe even like going on a mission trip could be in some ways a sacrament. And it's like, have you gone on a mission trip? Oh, no, you haven't. Oh, well, well, you should then because, you know, just, you know, missions are so big around new life. And it's definitely not like a sacrament like the Catholic Church would define. They would probably consider that idea blasphemous in some way or something. But in our kind of terminology, if we open up the definition of sacrament, that could probably be one. Um, Maybe around here, especially since this church is charismatic, maybe the baptism of the Holy Spirit could in some ways be a, a rite in which God is uniquely active, a, a sacrament in some way. But that's just kind of a rabbit trail, but to get your mind going into the direction of a sacrament is a symbol, a, a, a kind of an action symbol that we do within the church. And so to change our definition of symbol, I thought we need to change it from, it was just uh, things that, 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 
a scribe meaning, but now I think we need to open it up to a symbol as something or an action that represents something else by association, resemblance, or convention. So if you, if you want to go back and change your definition, you can, or rewrite this new definition just to include that italicized or an action. So, so we're talking today about symbols as actual things or actions that we do within the church. And so I want to ask the question, how do we understand symbols? Like what role should symbols take in our Christian lives? How should we view symbols? Should we, should we be very serious about them? Should we be not too serious about them? And I, I, I put up this as a kind of a continuum. Two points on, on either side, if you, if you can read that. Um, there's like a continuum. There's a middle line. You see the middle line with a dash. I thought these are two extremes. These are the tensions of, of how some people view symbols. Uh, on one side, there's the worship of symbols. That, that in some ways, uh, people are actually worshiping an actual thing because it's so holy to them. And then, and then we, as usually as evangelicals, would be like, dude, you're worshiping the thing. Don't do that. Worship God. And, and then we, we could, there could be a tendency, maybe not, to, to go the other, other way and, and no regard to anything that's holy. It's like someone wears a cross and you're, and you're like, man, that's dumb. <laughs> like, well, why is it dumb? Oh, because it doesn't, you know, if someone's like, well, I wear the cross because it keeps me from accidents. And you're like, what? What does that mean? Like they would be worshiping it. But then you could like react to that and like rip it off their neck and, and throw it in the trash. And it's like, dude, you just disrespected potentially a representation of Christ. And so here, there, that's the, an exaggeration, an extreme of the two types uh, of uh, views of how you could look at symbols. And then I thought there there's has to be some middle ground. So I added these two. You could draw this if you want. Or it's actually all four of these points are in your notes uh, that, we, that we handed out. Uh, no regard for holiness. Um, Worship of symbols. The, the symbols connect us to God and symbols are powerless of themselves. So as you can see, if you, if you look at this chart for just a second, uh, on the one hand, the right-hand side is no regard for the holiness. And then somewhere in the middle is just knowing that symbols in themselves are powerless. That's a true statement. In fact, both of the statements that are to the right, of, right and left of the center line I think are true. Symbols do connect us to, to God, but symbols in and of themselves are, are powerless. It's not like you can hold a cross to a Dracula, and it, it, it makes him go away or something. Well, it's just, this isn't Hollywood. This is real life. The cross has power because it's a representation for Christ, and we could be reminded, but the cross in and of itself doesn't have that kind of power. See where I'm going with this? So what I want to do is to talk about each one of these, all four of these, um, in a certain order. I want to talk about in the order that's in your notes. And, and so keep in mind this, uh, this chart. And, and so... Let's talk about this one. It's turned green now. No regard for the holiness of a symbol. And I know that I may have, out of any one of the tendencies of either worship a symbol or no regard for the holiness of a symbol, it's my, you know, in just my, I guess, in my personality or the way I was raised, because I was raised Catholic and I kind of missed it as a kid, like I didn't understand who Jesus was, or relationship with Christ. I, w- I wouldn't say that I was saved, as I, as I would say I'm saved now. I kind of missed the ball. I would, you know, there's a tendency that, like, I did the rosary. I did, you know, all these symbols. I stood and I, I sat when the, when the church did, and I did the sign of the cross, and, and I had uh, little jo- St. Joseph figurines, and uh, it's all these symbols, and I went through the, the motions of the sacraments and things, and yet I still missed 
the relationship with Christ and being saved. And so when I was in high school and I, I started going to another church and I realized that Jesus, you know, you could have a personal relationship with Jesus and you needed to be saved and you could um, be saved by, by your true faith in him, then I kind of revolted against my old ways. And I remember throwing out my rosary, throwing out my Catholic Bible, throwing out my little St. Joseph figurines and things because I just thought, you know, I don't even have regard for these symbols anymore because in some ways in my own personal life, and I say this as a former Catholic, not to, uh, to, to bash the Catholic Church. I think it's a, it's a great um, denomination and there's lots of people that are saved within the Catholic Church. But for me, I missed it when I was there. And so for me, the symbols kind of had like this, like a wall. It's like I was looking at the wall instead of God behind the wall. And, and so hopefully you're not taking that in the wrong way. But, so I, I remember when I got saved in high school and I started going to this Protestant church, I, I specifically did not get baptized. You know, the, the church taught about believer's baptism, but I, I said, you know, do you have to be baptized to be saved? And they said, no, you don't. And so I said, well, then I'm not going to get baptized because I just don't want to be a part of that. I know you don't need it for salvation, so I'm just going to go away from that and I don't even need to do that. But then, I think uh, further on in my Christian life, I think it was almost, let's see, I got saved in 93, and then I, was, I wasn't baptized until like 99, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9. That's six years between getting saved and getting baptized. I learned about baptism. It's like, well, Christ just said to do it, and so out of that you should just do it. And, and with that, I, I did finally get baptized, and I'm, I'm warming up now more to tradition and liturgy and the symbols that, as a kid, I, 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 I used to have regard for, and then, I, then being saved, I didn't. And so, anyways, that, that's a little bit about, you know, you could have no regard for symbols. And here's, here's an even more extreme example, going back to this guy, uh, Ulrich Zwingli. On the back is a sweet quote by him, uh, of your, uh, back of your notes. We call it a skillet. Kind of sounds like a Sunday school millet, so that's why we did that. But uh, on the back, there's a sweet quote. It says, For God's sake, do not put yourselves at odds with the word of God, for truly it will persist as surely as the Rhine, which is a river in Germany, it goes into Switzerland, I think, which flows its course. One can perhaps dam it up for a while, but it is impossible to stop it. So follow after the word of God. And so where in the word of God are such things? Zwingli would say, where are such things as Lent? Well, they're not in the Bible, so don't do it. And so go so far as like to have a barbecue and let everyone smell your bacon during Lent to, to say to the Catholic Church, we don't want to do this because it's not in the Bible. Or you could ask yourself, where in the Bible is stained glass? It's like, well, that's not in the Bible, so get rid of that. Where in the Bible are big cathedral-like buildings? Well, that's not really in the Bible. Um, where is it in the Bible that, you know, you, you should, you know, fill in the blank. And so Zwingli... Um, Here's, here's a, a painting of the, the rebellion of the Reformation. Zwingli, with this political charge in Switzerland, went on Easter uh, 1529 and abolished um, the sacraments, re- were rejected, pictures, statues, relics, altars, organs, regardless of their artistic value, were destroyed and burned. Such things as gold, such as chalices and crosses, were melted down for their value, and anything religious, anything symbolic, anything that had, you know, gold or, or nice things, uh, the organ was just burnt, destroyed, uh, lit on fire, mobs of people with this newfound thought of like, yeah, where is this in the Bible? Now we're mad. They, they all throughout the Reformation, especially in Switzerland, being led by Zwingli, um, burned this stuff to the ground. 
obviously no regard for the holiness of a symbol on the far right. But now we go to the other extreme to talk about this for just a second. And, and somewhat of the, the worship of the symbol itself, which is another opposite of extreme that we don't want to do. And, and sometimes I think we just, we just don't think sometimes. We, we say things like, yeah, let's, let's worship the cross. And you're like, yeah, let's, let's worship the cross. And you're like, well, you know, if you stop and think for just a second about that statement, do we worship the cross? No, we don't. We worship Jesus who died on that cross and that cross is the symbol of his death. And so um, we, we should not worship the cross. You know, figuratively, or you know, we could talk about all this worship at the cross, which is remind ourselves of the worship Jesus' death, how that saves us. We could wear crosses around our necks. We could put crosses in our church buildings, and they could remind us of God. But they themselves should not um, be worshipped, right? We shouldn't worship the altar of God. We should worship God. And so, so the idea of like maybe a more traditional church having a big altar, and I remember as a Catholic kid, you'd go in and you'd, you'd kneel down and do the sign of the cross in respect to the altar if you ever crossed the, uh, the, the, the pew, the middle pew. You would, you would you know, worship the, the cross or worship at the cross. And as a kid, I just thought, oh, that's, we're worshiping that altar. That's where, and you know, kids think dumb things. I was like, that's where Jesus was killed on that altar. And it was like, it didn't make sense to me, but I was a kid. So, so I was like worshiping that altar. He's like, no, you don't worship the altar. You don't worship the cross. You worship what it represents, which is God himself. And so I think that's all I want to say about that. But it is such a, such a tendency, I think, to think more highly than we ought of the actual symbol, of the thing that we can see rather than the unseen God himself. So much so that I want to talk about the R word for a second, a relic. A relic is an object or a personal item of religious importance with a significance of veneration. Veneration just means giving it uh, holiness or giving it uh, your whatever. Uh, what do I want to say? Giving it a kind of a... Uh, I don't know. I'm, I, I'm, a, I'm just up here talking. I don't even know what I'm saying anymore. <laughs> what? Man, that bugs me. I can't think of, like, giving it respect, maybe? Reverence? Yeah, okay, that, that, that helps. Thank you for yelling out. Um, significance of veneration as a tangible memorial. So a relic, uh, usually, like, during the Middle Ages especially, these things were, people would find and collect relics, actual things or body parts belonging to saints or the apostles, or maybe Jesus himself. Like this one, one of the famous ones, this is called the Shroud of Torin, which is uh, in a church in Spain right now, uh, the city of Torin, I believe. And it is the shroud, supposedly, we don't, there's no way to prove it for sure, but there's a lot of scientific and historical debate about this piece of cloth, which is laid out on this table here. And that cloth was maybe the, the exact cloth that Jesus was wrapped in when he died uh, at the tomb. And so... It's, it's laid out here. People will come and they'll, they'll, they'll pay their respects to it. Maybe they'll, they'll want to try to touch it. They'll want the blessing of, of this cloth that just may be. I mean, if it really is, and there's, there's nothing, I mean, there's historical and scientific debate about whether or not it actually is or could be the cloth that Jesus was wrapped in uh, when he died. But if it is, that's pretty cool. That's pretty sweet. But it's, it's not something to be worshipped in and of itself. Or this, take this relic, for example, this, this piece of wood here. I don't know if you could see it clearly enough, but it's a piece of wood and then another piece of wood. And the other piece of wood uh, makes the first piece of wood look like a cross. 
And this piece of wood is an ancient piece of wood believed to be the exact, at least a, a piece of the exact cross that Jesus died on. And this has even more scientific and historical kind of people raising their eyebrows saying, uh, we don't think so, but it could be. This is a, in Jerusalem at the Church of the uh, Holy Sepulchre. And anybody ever seen this? Go visit it. Oh, a couple of people, cool. And, and so people will line up, they'll see this thing, they'll want to get close to it or touch it, hoping that they will be blessed by it. And that's just not, and, and especially in the Middle Ages, you know, you, you would make a pilgrimage to Rome and visit some of these relics. And if you, know, if you could just touch the, 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 the thing, whatever it was, whether it's Peter's you know, uh, grave, and now it's Peter's, St. Peter's Cathedral, if you could just touch this or hold it, then you would be blessed and somehow be saved from this. And that's just, that's just silly. It's the worship of the symbol. Uh, and, and, and so much so that I think it could be idolatry in a way. The, the holding this thing... As, as a somehow powerful God in your life. And, and, and maybe you're not going that extreme, but Isaiah says this, and I really like verse 19, which I'll get to in a second, but verse 15 says, Isaiah 44, 15, it's talking about wood and making a, an idol or a god out of wood. It says, It is man's fuel for burning. Some he takes and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. He also fashions a god and worships it. He makes an idol and bows down to it. Verse 19, no one stops to think. No one has the knowledge of or understanding to say. Half of it I use for fuel. I even baked bread over its coals. I roasted meat and I ate. Shall I make a detestable thing from what is left? Shall I bow down to a block of wood? No, that's silly. Stop to think about what you're doing. Even if it is the actual piece of cross that Jesus died on, it's just a piece of wood. Worship Jesus who died on it. He said he was God. We worship God, not a piece of wood. So that, that's that, and that's obviously an extreme. So let's concentrate now uh, for just a second on the on the two middle points. The first one being symbols that connect. Symbols do connect us to God, and I think we can, you know, if, if we're wearing a cross in here, just a perfect example because probably so many of us are uh, have a cross on. Or, or something, uh, or a tattoo of a cross, or something like that. It's a symbol that can connect us to God. We can be reminded of God by looking at this or wearing at uh, this cross, and that's a good thing. It should remind us and connect us to God in some way. But never forgetting that the other side is also true, on the right side, that the symbol itself is powerless in and of themselves. And so you don't, like, oh, I forgot to wear I put put my cross on today i better be careful or else i might get into a car accident because i don't have my cross on well that's silly that's venerating this this symbol that's that's just it's just it's a symbol worship god he is the one that that is to be worshiped not the cross itself make sense i mean this is this very broad stuff today but i think in a lot of ways i need to i needed to give this talk before going on there's two more talks left this month uh, we're going to spend a whole Sunday next week on baptism and then a whole Sunday after fall retreat on baptism. But I just felt like I need to talk about these things as symbols so that uh, so that in, in one regard we, we don't just treat it as an unholy thing. Like, oh, baptism, communion, that's just silly. It's all just symbolic. You know, if you want to get baptized, you know, however you want to get baptized, that's cool. Or however you want to take communion, if you want to take it with pizza and Mountain Dew, that's cool. It's just, you know, it's just symbolic. Who cares? It's like, well, no, there is some holiness. There is something to be said about reverence uh, of these symbols. Not that they are 
God themselves, but they need to be, um, they're, they're holy because we give them holiness because they do connect us to God. So, conclusions. Um, Isaiah, that, that passage just says, Isaiah 44, 19 says, no one stops to think. I pray that today we would, we would stop to, and think about the symbols that we, that we have, the, the sacraments that we believe in. Stop to think about what they, what they mean to us and, and why we go about the motions. Why are you, uh, doing, you know, celebrating Lent? Why do you wear a cross around your neck? Why do you have a fish tattoo? Think about that. And then why, how does that help you? You're not going too far and worshiping the symbol yourself. Um, big point, know why you hold a symbol as important. Remind yourself that it holds no power in and of itself, but helps you to connect with God. And I think if we keep those things in mind this month as we preface baptism and communion and more talks about symbols and sacraments, this would be one of the biggest points to hold on to. So with that, let's pray. Let's, let's uh, close in prayer. God, we do thank you for, for such things that, that you hold as, as somehow holy or we hold as holy in our lives that can remind us of you, that can somehow connect us to you in some tangible way. But God, we do pray that if there's anything unholy about our maybe a veneration of a symbol, that God, you would show us that and, and help us to maybe even get rid of those things in our life that are a distraction to you, that are somehow religious symbols that are, that are meant for good, but are somehow distracting to us. God, we praise you and you alone. You are God alone. You are God. There's no one like you. You are awesome and holy and we worship you. We praise you this day. And everyone said, Amen. All right, everybody. You're officially dismissed. Peace out. We'll see you next week for a talk about communion.